You are listening to Vida Abundante. We have started a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. Here's Pastor Jonathan Gallardo. John chapter 1, let's read the first five verses. I'm reading out of the ESV just in case it's a bit different from your translation. John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now turn with me to a very popular passage in Scripture. If you go with me to Colossians. Colossians, we're going to read chapter 1 of Colossians. And I want to put this, uh, I want to read this here because it's speaking on Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In him, in in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Once again, my friends, John is preoccupied with teaching us and putting our attention on Jesus Christ. The sole purpose of Christianity, if we want to put a name to it, the sole purpose of our faith is the person, Jesus Christ. He is the one who we revolve all of our attention to, put our hearts to, and put our faith in. You don't put your faith in me. You don't put your faith in the church. You don't put your faith in saints. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. And John stresses the fact that the reason why we put our faith in Jesus Christ is in the beginning was the Word. He was at the very beginning. He was not created. Rather, he was creator. Not created, creator. And because he was not created, and because he is the creator of all things, our attention and our hearts and our faith and our minds go straight to this person, this reality of Jesus Christ. The whole gospel hinges on this person of Jesus Christ. Because if he comes into existence as a human, there must be a purpose for his incarnation for his entrance into humanity and so what that purpose is is our destiny is our hope is our faith because now we get to scratch the surface and begin to dig deep onto what this person is see we are not here because we are christians we are not here because We want to label ourselves as just Christians, and that's it. We need to know who Jesus Christ is. And so at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, that's why we spent about four weeks in these couple of verses, because it stresses this very important fact about him being the Word of God, being with God, and ultimately being God himself. He is God. Jesus Christ, in this most plain definition, is God. He is the God-man, fully God and fully human. Although we can't discuss this in detail, we had several discussions of this uh, past past couple of weeks, but we want to understand what that implies to us and why John stresses it in the first century. So verses 3 through 5 are crucial for our understanding of who Christ is. First of all, verse 3, if we go back to verse 3 in John, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's kind of an awkward phrase, awkward sentence, 
However, it stresses the fact that once again he is creator. So we got to get this straight. We got to understand this. We got to get right with this. What does this mean and what does this imply? And why is this at the very front of the gospel? This is the gospel of the theology in a sense of who Christ is. It talks about his Christology and it stresses the fact that he is God. So if he is God and he is a creator of all things, then what does that mean for us? So I'm going to give you a very brief outline today, a very simple outline, so that we could finalize our understanding of what the creator means and its implications towards us. So if you have a pen and paper, those who are most holy will always write notes. Uh, if you do, have, if not, just take out your iPhone and put it on your notes. Uh, three simple things that we're going to discuss. We're mainly going to discuss two because I'm going to run out of time. But three basic things coming from verses 3 through 5. One of the first important things that we're going to examine today on the impl implications of a creator talks about his power. Creator means power. We're going to discuss that in a bit. The second aspect to this outline is that God cares. Henry was talking about this just a little while ago while he was reading the Psalter. God cares. And the final aspect of creation or, or the implications of a creator is that God therefore creates anew or recreates. And we'll see that in verses 4 through 5. So, at the very beginning, we've gone through a huge discussion on what the logos means or the word of God. We've gone through a huge discussion on some of the basic elements and aspects of creation. And, and we don't want to get too scientific on this because this isn't John's plan or his idea to describe to us how the world came to be. We could go back to Genesis chapter 1 and go through that and have a big conversation on what that is. However... What we're going to discuss today is John's focus and primary focus to get the first century readers in line and what we need to do to get there and how we need to figure that out too. So because God is creator through Jesus Christ, the logos, the word of God, because he is creator, he is powerful. He is all-powerful. And this power is reflected on the fact that God created, created what the Latin phrase means, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. That's powerful. So again, we're not going to get scientific about this. We'll do that when we do have a, a detailed study on, John, on Genesis chapter 1. But this ex nihilo concept is, is this wonderful aspect of creation that comes from nothing. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 3 stresses this very fact. Now I just want you to think about this a little bit. Everything that you and I have experienced up until this day has been created by someone using Something. Uh, for instance, the wonderful creation of the iPhone. It was invented or created in the mind of a man and then came to be by people and put it into practice. Uh, they didn't invent the materials of the iPhone. They just put all the materials together and poof, we get 50 different versions of the iPhone throughout these, uh, after these eight years or 10 years or so. So it's creation out of nothing is implying or is telling us straight out that there was nothing made before it. So I just, I just want you to just kind of wrestle with that in a bit. There is nothing God used to create. No other material. No other substance. It was God at the beginning. And God bringing into existence the materials to create. This erases this first century Greco-Roman belief of material being eternal. And we spoke about this a bit last week where most of us or some of us or even I've wrestled with the fact that sometimes we do put our faith in materialistic things, in the things that we've seen and created things, and yet those things were created and will one day come to an end. See, the Greco-Roman world in, in the first century believed that the material world was always in existence. It was always around. 
And so therefore, that's what God used to create. However, they thought the material world was evil. But this is false because the material world came into being because God created it. Because there was nothing before that. Now, I want you to keep thinking about this and, and keep wrestling it in your head because one day, if you find the courage to speak to somebody about Christ, you will one day have to confront this fact where you will explain to them, hey, look, John chapter 1 says that God created all things. And you're going to have to explain to them what that means. And friends, we live in the 21st century, and that is not easy. You're going to get laughed at, you're going to get mocked, and you're going to be like, well, well, let's look at this, you know, scientifically. There's an evolutionary process. There's science. There's all of this data that supports uh, something else happened. Um, so you got to really think about this. you got to really take it to heart. Am I really going to believe this Jesus Christ created everything, even the things that didn't exist and put, brought them into existence by nothing? That's who Jesus Christ is, and that's why John puts him at the front. He created ex nihilo, out of nothing. No, no material existed beforehand, and this goes against another understanding that we have in the 21st century, which is called process theology, where God is always learning, God is always growing, and therefore God is always creating. And because the material world existed, God kept using the material world and making it new, and so God is therefore always creating and always learning. That is a 20th century, 19th century uh, introduction to process theology. They brought this into being, letting people know, well, we don't really need to think of God as creator. He was just reinventing creation. And to, the, to this day, there's a lot of people that believe that. God is always becoming, and that is not what the Bible teaches. And that's why we have to come back to the Word of God, because this isn't my authority. I don't tell you what to think or what to believe, it's what the Word of God says. And if the Word of God says it, then you and I have to wrestle with this fact that we must believe it if we believe God wrote it. Another implication of this powerful God that created out of nothing is that the devil or the, the serpent or, the, or, or, or whatever name you have for this evil entity did not create evil. Did, or did not create the material world, did not bring into existence his part of creation. And, and we'll go a little bit in, into that in, as, as we get to further into the study today. But it isn't him that created because he has no power to create. Why? Because he is a created being. The God created the devil? Yes. What are the implications of that? Well, that's a whole separate other story. That's another 15-week discussion However, this is something that you and I must understand. Creation does not create. There is a certain type of evolutionary process within creation. I'm not going to get too much into that. But creation itself does not create. The, the devil does not have power to create. So the people that you deal with that are tough at work, the devil didn't make them, although you may believe that he did. He didn't make them. He can only distort or stain original creation. Creation, therefore, because it is brought through a powerful force, a powerful creature like God, a powerful creator like God, therefore it holds and it sustains a focus, a purpose, a destiny, per se. It has a clear bullseye. There is a clear destination. And in, in a grand scale, we can call this destination the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory alone. This creation has this purpose and inclination to live for his glory. Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44 describes creation bowing down, all the heavens bowing down, all created things looking towards creator and giving him glory. There is a clear destination and a path for creation. If you and I are part of his creation, what path are we on? Are we on the path of giving creator glory, or are we on a separate path, usually giving ourselves the glory or something else? So this is the purpose behind creation, and behind a powerful God bringing into existence something 
out of nothing. Although we are not Reformed or Presbyterian, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this at the very beginning, in their very first question, when they teach the people, or if you ever read the Westminster Catechism, the first question says, what is the chief end of man? Answer to that question is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our sole purpose in this world is to glorify God. Think about who you are. You know, those who are married can see your spouse and, and, and thank, thank God for, for them. Because you know no one else would love you if it wasn't for them. And you look at your spouse and you say, wow, God, thank you for giving me such a wonderful person to, to be at my side. Thank you for this. And, and, and sometimes you, you take that for granted. But even then, you don't live for their glory. You live to glorify God. And your marriage will reflect that. So in this purpose of a, create, in, of a creation that was created out of nothing, this purpose, therefore, has a glorification aspect towards a great and amazing God, but it includes within this purpose of glory, it includes some requisites. We are to obey. Can you imagine God making everything beautiful and, and making everything amazing where creation would never have to obey? There is a clear distinction in, in what, how we face life. There are certain things and elements that we have to kind of abide by to understand the righteousness of God. If everything was real good, then there is no sense of obedience and therefore we answer that old question that gets thrown against the sovereignty of God God created robots no God did not create robots he gave people this will this freedom and although it is free to a certain extent we have this understanding of having to obey what are we in conflict with well there is God and there's obviously evil, and we're going to get to that in a bit, but this concept of obedience rests in our souls, and we could see it in nature. Nature obeys God on the natural law. You look at the waves that crash the ocean, what's happening there, that's God's ecosystem of recycling, and even though if you're like super uh, eco-friendly, you understand that in the way, uh, right now the oceans are being over-polluted and all this garbage that's coming out. However, this ecosystem got created to wash itself, and the waves crash the coast, not to give the surfers a wonderful chance to ride an awesome wave. But rather, it's obeying God's creation inherently. It's part of what it is. It's natural. However, humans obey God consciously. We have the opportunity to obey God or disobey. See, nature, nature does it intrinsically, inherently. We do it consciously. So a lot of us here will have to wrestle with this fact of, Obedience to God or disobedience. This wonderful, powerful aspect of who God is also includes within itself this wonderful understanding that if God created from nothing, He is the ultimate reality. See, we're, we're spending time on this because we want you to understand Jesus Christ as Creator and what this means. He is the ultimate reality, and so therefore we must reject this concept or this notion of what, the, what, what modern theologians and, and liberal theologians call dualism, this yin-yang concept where there's an ultimate good and there's an ultimate bad, and they have equal power, equal authority, yet they're distinct, and that's not the case. I don't know if you know what yin-yang, have you seen the, the yin-yang symbol? One's black and one's white, and that's description at a general sense of good and evil. And most of us sometimes believe 
this very fact. Oh, yes, because there is a God, the devil has to exist, who has equal authority, who has equal power, but yet is bad. God, good. Devil, bad. Well, that's not the case, friends, because if that was it, then we'd have two separate gods, two separate ultimate realities of who God is. Again, because God created out of nothing, God is in himself the ultimate reality. Ultimate good and and the equal ultimate bad isn't in existence. Evil comes from a different source. And we'll get to that in a bit. We'll have to answer that question. God created the good and the devil stained it. Creation, therefore, is God's unique aspect, God's unique unique authority in the universe. It is not copied. It is, didn't need any help. He didn't need any advice to create. So we have this wonderful aspect of God being a unique creator because he created out of nothing. He didn't ask for anybody's advice to put things in order. Now you think of the concept of the eyeball, you think of the concept of the human, the, uh, of the human nervous system, you think about all of this and you wonder how this came to be. God was unique. God didn't copy anyone. This concept is also considered by most theologians as the aseity of God. He is all self-existent, self-sustaining, and independent from everyone or anything. See, God doesn't need us to exist, yet he created us. He is the ultimate reality. He is unique in his creation, and he is self-existent in himself. We're going to go a little bit further in this concept of creator, because I want you to understand the aspects of it. God creates out of nothing, ex nihilo, and then what he creates is very good. Read that last verse of Genesis chapter 1 with me. Just turn your Bibles back to Genesis chapter 1. And it goes through, the all Genesis chapter 1 goes through the long list of creation And in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. Everything that God made, everything that was uniquely designed, everything that came from nothing was very good. In this is obviously the man and the woman, the animals, the beasts, the, the, the vegetation, all of this was God's unique design. And because God created it, it was very good. Does God create bad things? At the very beginning of creation, he showed us his, his implication or his, his uh, intention of designing a good world. A perfect world. That's why he said it, and that's why he rest every time. If you look at verse 4 and verse 6 and verse 13, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. And at the very end, he says, it was very good. God looks at everything that he does and, realize, and sees that it was very good. Why? Because God is good. What he creates is good. And there seems to be a contradiction here, but we'll get to that in a bit. I want you to wrestle with this a bit. So, from the very beginning, this material world, this created world, was very good. It wasn't inherently evil, as some of us think of it now, or as some of the old philosophers thought of it then. Everything was very good. So then, why does evil exist. Now, this is a separate conversation on God's attributes, 
However, I just want to present this to you because it will, you will have to wrestle with this sooner or later, especially when you tell your friends, when you're all hyped up on Tuesday, going back to work after a long week and everyone's excited to go back to work, waking up at 6 in the morning, you're just so pumped to go back to work. And you're pumped because you, you, you learn John chapter 1 and you can tell your friends at lunchtime, hey, Jesus, uh, the, the, the word of God created the heavens and the earth, and your friends are going to be like, oh, really? Your God created the heavens and the earth? Then, then why is everything so bad? What's going on? Why does God allow this? Why does God allow that? If God is so good, I mean, that question that you always will get. So I want you to wrestle with that notion, because if God did create everything, then why are things evil? The dualistic understanding would say something like this. God is good. And everything that he creates is good. However, because there is a dual authority in the world, that authority is, governs all material aspects. And that authority, if we want to call it the devil, created the material world. And so therefore, that's why there's evil. It's a pretty simple answer, right? If, you're, if you believe in dualism, then you'll think, yeah, well, that makes sense. God does all the good things and everything is good, and the devil creates all the bad things. Okay, pretty simple. That's the answer you'll tell your friends. No, well, that's not the case, because as we learned, the devil does not create. He has no power or authority to create. So then how do we answer this? Although this theological uh, answer is too broad to answer in, in just 20 minutes or 5 minutes. It does have the basic sense, and, and you might be very unsatisfied with the answer. And believe me, friends, this answer will take us, would take us about another 6 to 8 week session on discussing this concept of evil. But at the core of this discussion, and although you may be very unsatisfied with the answer, the way the Christian or the way the believer in Christ would answer such a thing is because there is sin. Now why is this a, a simplistic answer? Well, because we still have to wrestle with the natural evil. Sin answers the moral evil in this world. But there is natural evil in this world, and we would have to answer that. And that would be for a separate class. Today, I'm just worried about talking about the moralistic aspect of sin and evil. With that, I want to turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to discuss this with you a bit. So the concept of sin exists, and we read, look at what chapter 8 of Romans says. Paul discusses this and wrestles with this himself. Verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him whom subjected it in hope. Who is the one that subjected creation? The creator. Verse 21. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the, who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Look at verse 24. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen, now hope that is seen is not hope. For, we hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it with patience. So we get this concept of evil, and, and Paul is bringing this, giving us a, a, a simple answer a bit, but he's letting us know humanity is awaiting redemption. Why? Well, if you go back, you don't have to turn there, but if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, 
there is this thing called sin. Original sin. And Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you should not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This original sin that enters in Genesis 3.17 is the fault of why creation, you and I, are awaiting redemption. We are stained by sin, and that's why you and I wrestle in this world as children of God with this concept of sin and evil in our lives. Why do we do bad things? It's a question that you and I often ask our children. Why are you just bad? Why can't you behave? Why can't you not hit? Why can't you love your brother? Well, the simple question goes to us today. Why can't we just be good? Why are we bad? And so therefore, this wrestling, Paul says it's groaning. It's, it hurts us to be like this. Creation itself, the world, is groaning for redemption and awaiting the revelation of the glory of God through the sons of God. This is huge because evil is in the world because of sin. Answer we found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. So if this is the result and this is the reason why evil exists, then there must be a way to, for re remediation, to take away this sin. And so therefore, John is arguing in his first chapter, here is the creator, the logos, the word of God in Jesus Christ that we will read in verse 14 and 17. In him, we are created. In him, we are saved from this life of evil. You and I cannot find an answer within ourselves. We cannot be good on ourselves Try it, my friends. Give it a shot. And I want you to, to even go to YouTube today and look up this guy named Ray Comfort. It's a funny guy, and, and I love how he evangelizes people, but it, it's just funny how he evangelizes because he goes out on the streets on, in, in YouTube and he films himself, and he goes up to people and he asks people, are you generally good? And everyone will, of course, say, yeah, I'm Okay, I mean, I'm not a bad person. And then he goes through the whole list of the Old Test uh, of the uh, of the Decalogue of, of the Ten Commandments, and he and he asks them flat out, "Okay, well, if you think you're good and, and you're good before God, let me ask you some questions." So he says, "Have you ever said a lie?" And people will see, like, "Yeah, well, I say white lies every once in a while." Yeah, and then he he goes and he and he asks, "Have you ever lusted after a woman?" Uh, in your in your head and in your in, in your heart, and people will be like, "Well, that's normal." Yeah, I've looked at other women, and yes, I've lusted for them in my brain and in my heart. Okay, and ha have you ever used God's name in vain? And oh, well, of course we've used it in vain, but you know, it was never never uh, uh, out of the will, you know. And so he goes on through the list, and so ultimately he gets to the to this final decision, and he tells tells people, "So by your own admission, you are a lying thief, adulterous, blasphemer." And so they're like, oh, okay, okay, so I'm not that good. And, and friends, that's the reality of, of, of our existence. Try to be good. Go for it. Be all you can be. Be the best you. New year, new me. Uh, it's too late in the year to say that again, but try to be good. Go for it. So, some of us even use coming here as part of our being good you're going to realize that you're going to fall short all the time because there's something evil inside of us. Oh, that's hard to know. Are you calling me evil? I ain't coming back here anymore. That guy just called me evil. I'm not evil. I may not be that good, but I'm not evil. Well, friends, sin is hated by God because it's evil. And it turns our hearts away from him. And it ultimately results in idol worship. We either worship ourselves or something else. So we got to deal with this sin problem. 
sin issue, and John says, Jesus. John says, the Logos. He who created all things is he who saved all things. That's why we read this in Revelation 21 last week. The old earth will pass away, and he will bring a new earth into existence. He has a plan. God is very good. Everything he created was very good, and though it was stained by sin and by people and by the enemy, it will be redeemed. Theologian says it like this, we live in a world that God created, but it isn't quite as how God left it. It's this concept of sin, and then it ultimately leads into this human responsibility. See, if, if we were to believe in dualism or if we were to believe that the devil creates all evil, even evil in our own lives, then it's easy for us to exempt ourselves, correct? Well, the devil made me do it. Hey, why are you cheating on your wife? The devil. Why are you constantly getting drunk and, and doing all that? Oh, it's the devil, man. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry, pastor. It's the devil's been constantly behind me and, uh, and he knows my weakness. And it's easy to relieve ourselves from that because it's like, well, it's the devil. It's the devil's fault. It's not my fault. It's the devil's fault. Well, no, that's not the case. There's a human responsibility that we have because we are created and we have designed for a purpose of glory. Remember, there is this concept of obedience. We must obey. We must live in obedience to him who created the plan, who designed who architected, who orchestrated this plan, we must be in continual obedience to Him. See, in our old selves, in the old way of doing things, and this is for those who have come to an understanding that we are not how we were before. If you're here, you've understood to a certain extent that, you're, that you've been seeking after God, most of you can say, I'm born again Christian. I'm a born again Christian. I, I have a new heart. Most of us can say that. So we understand this putting away of the old nature. And we wrestle with sin. But the old nature is put away, as Paul says. Put it to death. And we have a new nature. So in the old nature, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we are slaves to sin. In the new nature, Paul says, we are now free to do what is right. In the old nature, we were only free to do what is wrong. In the new nature, we are free to do what is right. So therefore, there is still a sense of obedience demanded. Friends, you and I have to live a, a just life before God. It isn't to get salvation. It is to show what salvation has done in us. How awkward or how convenient would it be to be like, I'm a son of God, and because I'm still in my human wretched nature, I sin and I love it, but I'm still part of who he is. Uh, can you, you can't reconcile those two ideas together. You can't say, I love God and continue in a life of sin. What is that life of sin? I don't know. You tell me. What are the things that guide your heart other than God? Is it alcohol? Is it women? Is it men? Is it money? Is it things? Is it what is it? Whatever that is, that's the sin in your life that needs to be eradicated, removed in order for you to live right before God. Why? Because you can now. Because you have the opportunity to do so. Because he who created you has given you his son, Jesus Christ, to wash away your old nature and give you a new heart. That's why you are still responsible, my friends. You are responsible to live in righteousness before God. And stop blaming others, stop blaming society, stop blaming the external aspects. But start living right before God. I don't want you to be comfortable ever in church. I don't ever want you to be like, oh, well, yeah, this is cool. I mean, yeah, 
I could live however. I mean, no, no, no. You're never going to come here. And, and, and one, of the, one of the pastors, Henry or somebody else, would come and just pat you on the back. That's okay, man. Yeah, keep sinning. It's a little sin. It's a little sin. Don't worry. It, it, it's, not, it's not like killing anybody. No, you're never going to feel comfortable. I don't ever want you to feel comfortable because the day that you do feel comfortable as a Christian is the day that you're probably living a life of sin. We've got to call you out. I've got to call myself out. And that's why I'm married, and I love the fact that I'm married because most of you don't see my daily life, but I have my wife that can call me out. Be like, hey, pastor. Hey, you're going to go up there and preach with that mouth? That's why God gives us godly women to us men. That's the power of this creator. That's the power of our God. But it also has this other implication, friend. It isn't just that God is powerful. And we, we got to see the depths. It's been two weeks already that we've seen the depths of his creation and its implication. Now we got to see the powerful aspect of it. But, but friends, the other implication, part of our outline today, is that he cares. What does it mean for God to be creator? What does it mean for Christ, the Logos, the Word of God, to be creator? Well, he's all-powerful. Puts things in order. He's powerful enough to make us and, and save us. But friends, this creator also cares. And if we want to use a theological term, it is God's providence. We live in the comfort of God's providence. See, God is present and active in our lives, believe it or not. This wonderful, powerful God, the one that orchestrated all things, has stooped down and brought close attention to every detail of your life because he is active in our lives. He hasn't abandoned us. He watches over us. He cares. All chance and, and, and coincidence is ruled out because we are sustained by the governing hand of God. What better hand to be in? Why? Because he's, it's a powerful hand. It's a powerful God that holds our puny lives. Cares. Well, Pastor, why isn't he doing anything? I lost my family. I've lost my job. I've been under pressure lately. I'm I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling like the world has turned upside down. If God cares, why does he feel so absent? Well, friends, it's the beautiful aspect of God's providence is the comfort that comes in believing in a powerful God that has designed a plan and has a final aspect to it. It isn't like God brought creation into existence and then kind of just let it play out, roll the dice, see what happens. No, there is a plan in the middle and there's a plan for the end. And during the middle, though things get tough, difficult, hard, you cry, you you bang your head, you pull out your hair, though things in the middle feel like, oh, you groan in the middle of it, God has an end in plan. And that end gives hope for here. That's why the psalmist says wonderfully, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He guides me. Two green pastures, he comforts me. And even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. He is there in those difficult moments. Why? Two things of God's care. He preserves and he guides. In this providence of God, we find this maintaining aspect of our God. He is preserving his creation. God didn't just create the world and that's it. He preserves it. Though trials come, though they may seem like they prevail, they will not prevail over us because he has given us 
that which will hold us and that which will help us conquer. He's given us the Spirit of God. What God uses in this preservation is this wonderful aspect of trials and testing to affirm our faith. And although we don't have time to go through every passage, but you can read it in Job chapter 23, verse 10, Psalm 17, verse 3, Romans chapter 2, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, James chapter 1, verse 3, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. All these verses point to what? The fact that trials and testing will affirm our faith and let us grow. Yeah, stuff hurts in the beginning, but our faith grows and we grow and we begin to understand that there is hope, that there is light. That which knocked you down 20 years ago cannot knock you down now. You've learned and you've grown in God's hope. He sustains life. We read this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He's sustaining you. He has you in his hands. The wonderful good shepherd in John chapter 10, we're going to read that in probably next year or so by the time we get to chapter 10. But when we get to chapter 10, we're going to read that the Lord Jesus Christ has us in his hand and he prays that the Father has us in his hands and he will never, ever let us go. You are in his hands. He sustains your life and he supplies you with everything you need. God is not absent. This world has called this deism. Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, was a deist. Believe God just put the world, created the world, and put it on cruise control and let it ride. That's not our God. God sustains us, cares for us, and holds us in his hands. And the final aspect of God's care is that he guides us. Friends, you are not in control. And when things go wrong, guess who's been trying to take control? You, me. When things go south, we blame it on God, but it's us trying to jump into the driver's seat. God is in control and he governs the world for his purposes. He orchestrates everything because he is good. The final, the, we, we see this in Romans chapter 8 verses 28 that he works everything out for the good of his creation. And although we may not think it is good when God works, most of us would say, yeah, we want God to work in our lives. Well, when God does do the work, it may hurt. It may be something we don't like, but it's for the good. It's not always great things that will happen to us, which many Christians believe because they get fed this notion or this false God concept that God only wants good things to happen in your life. Well, that's not the case. It wasn't the case for Abraham, the father of our faith. It wasn't the case for Moses, one of our patriarchs. It wasn't the case for David, one of the greatest kings of Israel. It wasn't the case for Jesus, his son, because he hung on the cross. No, God isn't just giving you or feeding you with a golden spoon. God is giving you what he considers best because he is good. And so because we have this confidence in a good God, we know that when things happen to us, it's stemming from a good source. And though we don't like it, and though we groan, and though we get upset, we understand that his purposes are far greater than ours. And we can find comfort that he is conforming us to his image. And though we don't like it, we are going through it because it's going to produce in us confidence and eternal hope. His goodness extends ours. His goodness is greater than our concept of good. We have a definition of good. That doesn't mean that that's what God calls good. Remember, God defines what is good, not us. He is permanently concer con uh, concerned for his people and will always keep us in his hands. So, friends, why do we pray? I'm going to close this portion with, with this. We pray not to change God's mind because God's plans are fixed and they're good for us. We pray, rather, 
so that it conforms us and gives us the right attitude to accept his will. That's what Jesus did. He says in Matthew, Lord, let this cup pass from me. However, not my will, but your will. Then he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So when we pray, we're not praying our will. We pray his will. And prayer, what it does, why James says it's good for us to pray continuously, is that we are conforming ourselves and making that attitude of accepting the will of God in our lives. Some of us don't like it. That's why we have to keep praying. So that our attitudes and our characters are conformed to his life. And we can rest assured that when we pray, he doesn't give us what we pray for. He gives us what's best for us. If it's what we pray for or not. So friends, let's prepare our hearts today as we gather today to take the communion. And we're doing this because communion serves the purpose of uniting God's church and purifying God's church under the word of God. So I want you to prepare your hearts as the musicians come to the front. We're going to sing one song. You, you can stay seated. We're going to sing a song. And if you haven't received the elements, uh, please raise your hand. Our friend Junior will walk around. Remember, this is for those who are born-again Christians who have been forgiven by the cross of Jesus Christ and who follow in his ways. Paul warns us to examine ourselves. And so if there is a sense of evil or sense of uh, break in your heart with somebody else or something that's going on, if you haven't asked for forgiveness, if you haven't made things right, it would be best for you not to take this because Paul says you bring to yourself condemnation. That's why it's an examination of who we are.